Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Joseph Borrell's visit to Moscow was a cold shower to himself and the whole bloc. Moreover, it initiated a discussion within the European Union about its Eastern policy strategy towards Russia, but also towards Eastern neighbors. One year after we've released scenarios for Eastern Europe, um, the report mapping out possible futures, foresight about developments and trends that um, Eastern partnership countries are experiencing, we're asking two experts to review important uh, elements that constitute this report and those scenarios. First, we ask Stanislav Sekreru from the European Union Institute for Security Studies, based in Paris, and also based in Paris, Nicolas Tensner, who is an experienced diplomat, a public servant, a former director of Aspen Institute. And we ask both of them how the current situation uh, may play out for the region of Eastern Europe, east of Central Europe, uh, including Russia. My name is Wojciech Przybylski, and together with Quincy Klut, we're inviting you to listen to this episode. Uh, Stanislav, I wanted to ask you um, from a point of view of an analyst uh, within the, you know, the core EU institution, the Institute of Strategic Studies, and an author uh, like yourself of, of scenarios about Eastern partnership, how do you... Um, How do you evaluate uh, the the situation a year after uh, the pandemic started from the perspective of Eastern partnership countries and their relationship with the European Union? Uh, first of all, thanks for invitation. It's uh, nice to be on your podcast. Second, just a small correction. We are EU Institute for Security Studies, <laughs> not uh, Security Studies. And then, thanks for, for the question. It's 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 very interesting one. Uh, I think the situation remains dynamic, and I can provide only a snapshot of a rapidly uh, evolving situation in the region and in the relations between the EU and Eastern Partnership. Well, first on the EU side, you know, EU was quite often criticized for being too slow. It was not the case in 2020. This uh, decision to provide. Uh, aid to Eastern Partnership uh, states. Decision was taken swiftly and bureaucratic machine has been mobilized to organize the delivery of assistance. Another interesting and remarkable thing uh, is that there was a greater synergy between what EU institutions and EU member states were doing in the Eastern Partnership countries in 2020. Now, if you look at Moldova from the very first days and Germany and Poland and France and Romania, have been actively supporting authorities to curb the spread of uh, virus. And similar examples we've seen in other countries and more EU member states contributing to that. You know? So this is another interesting development, a greater synergy between EU institutions and EU member states in the Eastern Partnership countries to address the main issue or the core issue of 2020, the spread of uh, covid And I think if we look a bit uh, into the future, if 2020 was about delivering masks, ventilators, and microfinancial assistance, in 2021, for you, it will be about helping with vaccination. 
sheltering the vulnerable categories of people and providing financial assistance uh, to restart economies. And, you know, I think what uh, as well needs to be underscored in this context is that we often look at how and what you did for Eastern Partnership uh, countries, especially in 2020. But it's often overlooked that some EU Eastern Partnership uh, uh, states, with some modest resources they have at their disposal, try to help as well EU. And uh, this is an example of amazing job done by the fleet of Ukrainian heavy cargoes, planes, transporting conveyor-related equipment to different EU member states. And I think as we are thinking about the future of Eastern Partnership, as we are about to have a summit in 2021, it's important to think that it's not only EU who helps Eastern neighbors, but in some cases how this close relationship can serve EU interests as well. Now about the situation or perceptions in the region, yeah, how how what EU did, how the response of European Union was perceived in the region. You know, I think I, I can we don't have a comprehensive data necessary to draw a complete picture. I've been checking a couple of opinion polls where the question about how do you perceive uh, the assistance provided during COVID uh, pandemic in Armenia, Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova. And, you know, these surveys help to draw, even if incomplete and imperfect, but some uh, helpful uh, picture. And what emerges out of these four surveys is, first, people in all four uh, states I've mentioned do know that you provided help. So there is no opinion poll where the EU would not be mentioned at least once in the context of COVID-related uh, assistance. Second thing, uh, perceptions do not match reality. And uh, what I mean by that, that EU help or the scale of European help is not reflected in all opinion polls. Asked who was the most helpful uh, country or international organization, during the pandemic, in two Eastern Partnership states, EU has been surpassed by China. In other two cases, EU came first. What might explain these differences and that China was um, figuring much prominently in the opinion polls is maybe first because some opinion polls were taken in spring, and in spring, China was much more active in delivering masks and tests because they already had a stock of it. EU had to prepare the stock before delivering. Another explanation might be that some leaders in the region tried on purpose to downplay EU role and play out China or Russia. And this is the case of a former president of Moldova, Igor Dodon, who several times on the record denied the assistance provided by you and play out the assistance provided by uh, Russia and China. There is actually a famous photo where former president Don stands in front of a Russian plane which delivered uh, equipment from China. Uh, so, you know, this important takeaway, uh, China before was present economically and was growing uh, economic presence but for the first time, we've seen China doing on such scale an operation which was aiming to boost its soft power in the region. 
And then third takeaway from these surveys is that the big proportion of those questioned could not name a country or institution, international, who helped them, uh, their, their countries the most. So these proportions, depending on the opinion poll, gravitated around between 20 and 40 percent. It tells us the story that the public diplomacy of all big players did not reach important segments of population. And I think there are, I mean, just to conclude, maybe you came a long way in terms of communication, especially how you communicate in a more competitive information environment. There were some lessons learned after 2014. But opinion polls show that there is a room for improvement still. And I think when the things will calm down a bit, we will need to conduct in-depth uh, regional surveys to understand how EU was perceived during the pandemic, assess EU campaign, but as well assess campaigns of other players, and to draw another list of lessons uh, for our future uh, communication. Yes, exactly. Uh, Stanislav, this, these are uh, very interesting findings. We definitely will uh, set our uh, 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 brains to, to research um, and to investigate with, with different uh, stakeholders during context with Eastern Partnership countries. But I wanted to ask you also, as you, sp you speak about the future uh, um, map of, of questions, we need to ask ourselves um, to understand what has happened throughout this year. We still uh, asking those questions, we relate on, on several sets of scenarios of what is at play and how the situation might be developing. And here I'm recalling the publication that you have authored uh, under ISS on scenarios for Eastern Partnership. And as it happens, we came out, uh, we came up with, uh, with also with five scenarios um, for the for the Eastern Partnership uh, that were released March last year. I'm wondering, uh, looking back at the scenarios that we were thinking about. How many of those scenarios do you believe were altered, or maybe which of those scenarios is uh, is much more closer to uh, you know to, to, to being played out uh, in in reality? What's your take on that? Yeah, uh, you know, I must confess that I, I read your scenarios and really like your exercise. Uh, and then uh, I think answering your question, I have to make a distinction. There are short-term scenarios which try to predict how things might play out. And there are mid to long-term scenarios, in which are rather foresight than prediction. They help to identify future risks, opportunities, as well as anticipate how long-term trends will unfold. And scenarios done by Visegrad Insight and scenarios we developed at the USS are rather uh, falling in the second category. They have a long-term shelf life and they cannot be discarded only after one year. So if I look at the scenarios you produced, you know, through the perspective of 2020, I can see the confirmations for all of them. For instance, you have a scenario of integration between EU and Eastern Partnership. Yeah? Certainly, there were no steps in terms of 
uh, integration uh, in terms of membership. But it does not mean that integration was not taking place in 2020 in different forms and shapes. For instance, you have Azerbaijan who finally can export gas to you via completed southern gas corridor. And even before that, EU was the main trade partner for Azerbaijan. It will be even more so uh, now than southern gas corridor uh, is functional. Uh, another example, Ukraine. Ukraine makes small steps on the way of obtaining so-called industrial visa-free with European Union. There are a lot of things still needs to be done when this option will be truly available for, for Ukraine. But some important steps were initiated. Uh, or, for instance, more European companies were storing the gas in the Ukrainian gas storages in order to withdraw it during winter time. And basically, Ukraine de facto, step by step, is integrating in the EU energy market. And if you look in 2021, probably there will be even more cases of sectorial integration. Ukraine and Armenia probably will sign the common aviation agreement with the EU. So this scenario remains valid, which you identified last uh, year. We have several examples which confirm the continuity from 20 to uh, 2021. Interesting one which you developed was return of Russian hegemony. And you know, it's not something new. Russia was trying to uh, assert uh, its influence in the region for like, the last three decades. Yeah? And, it and it kept doing in 2020 as well. For instance, in 2020, Russia uh, managed to uh, get a firmer grip uh, on Armenia than it had uh, a year ago. What is interesting is that this scenario was challenged uh, from two directions. Uh, Russian ambition for hegemony, uh, uh, Russian ambition to regain control was challenged by societies in the Eastern Partnership countries. Belarus is one good example. What happened in Belarus and protests in Belarus were not per se against Russia, but they were protesting against the type of system Russia would like to support in Belarus. Or another good example is the defeat of pro-Russian candidate in the presidential elections in Moldova by the wide margin uh, last year. But then the second challenge for Russia came not from the West, uh, how uh, Russia usually uh, anticipates this to be the case. But the challenge for Russian hegemony came from the third powers. The term we developed uh, for our uh, previous publication, which we examined how China, Turkey, and other countries are projecting their influence in the eastern uh, neighborhood. And if you look at the uh, China's charm offensive uh, in the region, uh, using the masks and uh, tests during COVID, and coming first, sometimes ahead of Russia in the opinion surveys. This is a sort of, you know, gaining soft power at the expense of Russia. But then what happened with Turkey and in South Caucasus, where it gained more influence on Azerbaijan, uh, is another good example uh, how third powers are squeezing Russian influence uh, in, in the region. And as we look into the future, it will be very interesting to look in the next decade 
uh, how Russia will adapt to the uh, greater presence of the fair powers in what it considers own backyard. In the next decade or in the current decade? Sorry, this decade, <laughs> because I'm still in 2020. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks for correction. You know? And then you have an interesting scenario on EU-Russia grand bargain, you know. And to be frank, I haven't seen any signs in 2020 for this scenario to be uh, under consideration. I mean, EU reconfirmed five principles guiding its relationship with Russia. What is important to say is that two out of five principles are actually about what EU has to do in Eastern partnership countries rather than uh, in relationship with Russia. EU provided the support during COVID uh, pandemic. And even Eastern Partnership Summit was planned but was postponed due to, due to the pandemic. And problem with Grand Bargain, which I see, is uh, that there is a problem which needs to be solved. First one, in order for this Grand Bargain to become functional, other, or as I mentioned, third powers should be included in this Grand Bargain. It's not enough to have Grand Bargain between those two players you mentioned in your scenario. A second thing, in order for this scenario to succeed, uh, uh, powers need to secure acceptance of societies. And we have seen in 2020 that it's very difficult and it's not uh, the case, uh, at least when Russia tried to ascertain uh, its uh, uh, power ambitions. And finally, I would say that for this scenario to be feasible, Russia may, uh, may, may needs uh, not only ambitions to have a sphere of influence, but it needs resources in order to hold on it, to ensure uh, order. And for this, it's not necessarily you need uh, only to have military tools. You need to provide economic subsidies to your uh, clients. And what we have seen in 2020 and even before, that Russia was cutting the subsidies to its clients, Belarus or Armenia, but was expecting from them even more loyalty than before. And uh, I don't think that in the long term it, it, it's going to work. Uh, Russia played this pro-Russian president in Moldova, but offered him little besides the illegal uh, funding for his party. You know, And it's not only enough uh, to invest in the elites, you need to invest in the societies. Uh, and unless Russia doesn't offer some development opportunities to the societies, it has little chances to secure in this decade a sphere of influence which will be enough stable and um, uh, functional. And then you have a very nice scenario about civil society momentum, which I like very much. And I think we've seen a lot of confirmation of this uh, last year. And uh, yeah, I've mentioned the example of Belarus. Another interesting example is amazing mobilization of diaspora, of uh, Moldovan diaspora for the presidential elections. This was an impressive movement and uh, it changes a bit, you know, the power balance uh, in uh, Moldovan uh, politics uh, and now and for the future. And societies will be important drivers of change, not only 2021, but through the next decade. The only problem with this scenario is that societies themselves cannot ensure better governance. This 
civic mobilization needs to be translated into the new majorities in the parliaments and in the new governments which can carry on these reforms. So the main takeaway is that in itself strong society but in combination with a weak state cannot produce a benefic effect. Yes, and I think we need to add here that civil society which is depoliticized, which is turning away from politics and considering activity outside of politics, is is exactly the society the civil society does does not produce change. And uh, and I think there is a, there there is there was a paradigm shift in the recent years about the function of civil society which needs to be challenged again and, and brought and brought back on the track of re-engaging and influencing the real course of, of political events. Absolutely. And it will be even more important as the generational change speeds up. And this uh, generation uh, was more exposed to European models or to Western models. And they have a high demand from the politicians. And they have totally different ideas about how state shall perform from the older political elite. Learn more about the Eastern European futures and the scenarios we've just discussed. Go to visegradinsight.eu slash EAP2030 as of Eastern Partnership 2030 to learn more about the scenarios and give us your feedback. Nicolas, Thank you very much for joining our podcast on a short notice. And uh, immediately I have to ask you about uh, the letter, the appeal that uh, you put together. And um, I also have a pleasure to to, uh, support it. Um, I think it's a very important letter. Can you tell a little bit about the message of the letter of the appeal uh, about Russians and about Europe uh, uh, regarding the situation in Russia. Thank you, Woktek. Yes, basically, I think that there was since a very long time an underestimate of the Russian threats by most of the European leaders. Many people are still considering Russia as a partner and they are considering the country and not the regime. They basically turned a bad line to the war crimes uh, committed by Russia uh, in Syria, in Ukraine and also in Georgia. They turned a blind eye to the murder of hundreds of dissidents, human rights fighters, investigative journalists, and they turned a blind eye to the systemic threats that the regime's Putin poses to the West. So it was a kind of waking call. Of course, we know that most of the European leaders are paying an attention to what happened in Russia because of the poisoning and the imprisoning of uh, Navalny. But I think that the message should have been heard since a very long time. And so we are insisting again on the very nature of this regime. I think it's just uh, foolish to try to appease the regime and to wait something in return from them. Because basically what Russia is intending to do is uh, to undermine the West, to undermine the Western values, to undermine the very wealth of uh, the international organization as well on humanitarian law, international law. I know it's really time to stop. But there is another thing 
in which the, on which we, we should really insist is the that what we are uh, well witnessing in Russia is a kind of attempt to destabilize the world through corruptions. We know since a long time, just look at uh, what uh, Catherine Bolton wrote in her book, Putin's People, there is a strong link between the mafia, between the organized crimes and uh, the uh, Sliloviki, I mean the security agents uh, in the first circle of Vladimir Putin. Uh, so I think that's basically, we have to raise awareness again and again, saying that we cannot appease this regime, we cannot discuss with this regime, and we cannot wait from this regime any improvement uh, on the situation both in Russia and in the world. Yes, again, uh, congratulations on the initiative, a very timely one, also in the light of a uh, visit of Joseph Borrell as the high representative um, of the European Union um, in Moscow, uh, a visit that was uh, seen and is seen as um, uh, as a perhaps uh, a bit uh, naive attempt to uh, break grounds uh, um, with with um, the regime of of Putin. How do you see the current state of affairs between the EU, Europe overall, EU institutions? And, and Russia, um, if you put it on a trajectory, looking at the past, but also linking to what may be in the coming years. Wojciech, I basically agree with you. The visit of Joseph Borrell was a true humiliation, not only for himself, but for Europe and for you citizen. Europe is trying to represent itself as a power. But what is this kind of power that try to negotiate with countries that are not willing to negotiate and that are profiting from any attempt to conciliate, to appease, to create more opportunities for him uh, to new aggressions abroad, a new crackdown on human rights, civil rights, free media and democracy at home. So basically, I think it's a litmus test for the EU right now. Either the EU is strong and is committed and united in imposing sanctions that really bite on the Putin's first circle, uh, Europe will disappear and will have absolutely no more credibility as a power and uh, an organization committed to liberal values, human rights. I think it's a real test for Europe. And I think that Europe is not strong enough. It will be a real ominous sign for its future. Uh, because I think that's basically what we are facing now with the systemic threat that Russia poses to the world is really something that we cannot uh, really can master only by being tough. I think that uh, in the past, basically the EU 
behaved uh, very weakly when it comes to Georgia, when it comes to Ukraine, when it comes to the war in Syria. And I recall that the Kremlin has killed more Syrian civilians than ISIS itself. And if Europe wants to be very serious on human rights principles and our war crimes that are imprescriptible, and I think it must take very strong and very tough decisions. Having said that, uh, what I am witnessing very sadly right now is that you, the EU is really strongly divided. And especially for one of the most important states, uh, namely Germany, uh, I think it's, uh, it is a very ambiguous position, to say the least. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Chancellor Merkel is blaming, of course, the Putin's regime for what it is doing uh, with Navalny, uh, also in other countries like Ukraine, uh, uh, from the illegal annexation of Crimea, etc. But on the other hand, uh, she is trying to maintain a kind of uh, channel of communication and even more than that, uh, to deal with Russia. And of course, the example of Nord Stream 2 is uh, really something that is absolutely not acceptable, not only because it endangers uh, urban energy security, but because it uh, jeopardizes also uh, the security in Europe. It will give a lot of money uh, to Gazprom, and we know that Gazprom is part of the Russian state. It means that this money could be used in the future uh, to uh, more aggressive attempts abroad. Uh, it will give the money to destabilizations of the West, to disinformation campaign. Uh, and I think that's a kind of uh, uh, not only ambiguous position, but a kind of irresponsible behavior. I think that if Germany especially wants to be serious on the threats that Russia is posing to the EU and to the world, it must absolutely renounce to this kind of nasty deals. Um, and I think that uh, we can also consider that other countries, let's say Cyprus, Malta, Hungary, also have some very strong links with Russian oligarchs. And I, saw, I think that it's not acceptable too. And I think that this kind of, lead of, of links uh, through the banking systems, uh, through also the possibility for Russian oligarchs to hold their, their all ill-gotten goods, um, is something that we have not only to denounce, but we have to put an end to it. Uh, when it comes to my own country, France, I think that uh, Macron was trying, uh, which was probably very misleading, uh, to build a kind of re-engagement with Putin's Russia, a kind of reset. He was trying to build what he called an architecture of trust and security. But as the Minister of Defense uh, said, Florence Parly, 
we obtained absolutely no results, no results on Ukraine, no results on Syria, no results on the security on Europe, no results on the destabilization attempts of the democracies. So basically, I think that no, uh, Emmanuel Macron has his eye open on that. And he has really to adopt that what I am advocating for, and also the signatories of the list that are advocating for, for all the member states. We have must have, I think, the very tough position on Russia. That's basically, I think, the last chance of Europe to get serious and to consider the threats as it is. You have mentioned also here the Nord Stream 2 project. And as we read in the press, uh, French, French government uh, was recently also voicing some skepticism towards Nord Stream 2 on the grounds of the upcoming decision, uh, European Union decision on the third energy package, uh, which might limit options for Germany and Russia to build the pipeline. But then there was the foreign minister who was cooling heads down. And I wanted to ask you, what is in your view, uh, a likely scenario uh, on the position of France when it comes to insulating the European Union from, um, as you said, a corrupt mafia state that Russia is today, uh, and, um, and also the European Union neighborhood, as you touched uh, about, uh, you know, as you said, uh, Nord Stream 2 has helped in the past to finance illegal operations like annexation of um, some land in uh, Ukraine, including, um, I mean, specifically Crimea and waging war on the east territories of Ukraine, but also to sponsor disinformation, um, a big a big headache uh, for contemporary democracy in um, in every country of, of, of Europe. So I'm, um, I'm asking you this question again, uh, just to rephrase it. Uh, what do you think is going to be the long-term position of French foreign policy on insulating or on securing um, the EU? How far uh, would such a change uh, be possible if there is any change upcoming? And the second part of the question, uh, is France uh, committed and interested in, in the European uh, neighborhood, in specifically European um, Eastern Partnership uh, program, part of the European neighborhood policy? Thank you, Vokcek. I think there are very, um, very important questions that you were raising. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have, of course, uh, uh, completely secure answer for, for the future. I think it will depend a lot of the French-German relations. I think that, uh, of course, you had uh, the, the Secretary of State for European uh, Affairs, uh, Clément Beaune, who was saying that he was not comfortable with uh, Nord Stream 2. And also in the past, behind closed door, uh, the French President, the French uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs also said that they were not completely comfortable uh, with the pipeline. Uh, but the issue is that they 
had the feeling, uh, right or wrong, uh, that they needed uh, Germany for all the purposes, uh, including uh, uh, the, the plan on the, um, the, the rescue plan, I mean, uh, after the coronavirus crisis and uh, other things. So I think the relationship between Germany and France is always a point uh, which is very sensitive and uh, none of the partners wants really to undermine the other. So basically, I think a lot will depend of uh, the resolve of uh, Angela Merkel uh, to have a tough position. And uh, I think the true issue is from this point of view that her coalition with the SPD is very much divided, that the CDU is divided, and that uh, Angela Merkel's quite often is taking uh, uh, her decision at the last minute. So we'll see what happens, you know, in the next coming weeks. Uh, but I think that France uh, probably doesn't realize right now how far, how deep uh, Nord Stream 2 is undermining uh, not only uh, the energy security and security of Europe, but also undermining the credibility uh, of uh, the EU, uh, because I think it will be a very bad signal sent to the community of democracies uh, if they accept well to uh, have this kind of trade deals. There is a temptation from many different powers, including France and Germany, to separate trade and uh, some issues like climate change and security. And I think that's uh, completely wrong, and especially when we are dealing with revisionist powers such as China and Russia, because uh, if we show a kind of understanding or willingness to have uh, uh, notwithstanding the threats that they are posing a kind of deal on trade, uh, uh, climate change, and uh, all sorts of vaccines, uh, then of course it fuels their own propaganda and it's a victory for them. And I think that France, especially in Germany and some other countries, also Italy, Spain, etc., have to make some progresses in the understanding on, on who Russian propaganda is playing. Just uh, uh, remember after a uh, very recent talk that uh, President Macron has with the European Council, um, with the Atlantic Council, sorry, um, you know, the uh, Russia Today uh, propaganda outlet, as uh, Macron labelled it uh, rightly in Versailles, uh, said, okay, you see, uh, Macron is saying that we have to deal and to have a long-term vision of the relationship with Russia because of history, because of geography, etc., etc. And I think that's basically something which is uh, uh, incredibly stupid because um, of course, we, we can understand the geography of Russia, we can understand the history of Russia, but what we have to consider at first is the very nature of the regime. So basically, I don't know what will be uh, the outcome of this. Um, and I am afraid that the relationship between France and Germany uh, could be the leading uh, consideration uh, in French uh, mind, I mean the, the mind of uh, of uh, its leaders. When it comes to the other question, Wojciech, I think that uh, 
France certainly, since a very long time, hasn't paid enough attention to what happened in the East. They are not investing enough on the relationship uh, with the country of the Eastern Partnership, but also some other country like Georgia, Ukraine, etc. That's why I was proposing, it was uh, just before the presidential election in France in 2017, that the next president, uh, whoever he or she is, uh, appoint a special envoy to the Eastern countries, not only the Eastern country of the EU, but also the country I just mentioned, such as Ukraine, Georgia, uh, Moldova, etc. Uh, because I think we have to really to invest a lot. We have to consider that those countries are as European as the Western countries. We cannot show contempt for those countries. Having said that, what I am considering, for instance, very recently there is there was an agreement between uh, uh, France and the Baltic states on defense and security. So, you know, in the field, uh, you have some progresses going on. Uh, and I think that we have also to understand that there is still room for global negotiation uh, with those countries on uh, all the security threats, not only Russia, but also China, but also Turkey, uh, because some of those countries uh, are also not that afraid than France, especially or Greece or Cyprus, on the threat posed by Turkey. Uh, but they are more a threat under threats posed by Russia. And I think there must be a kind of comprehensive deal um, linking, I think, the different threats that we have. For instance, uh, those countries have to become more aware of the threat coming from Ankara, and we have to become more uh, concerned and also informed on the threat uh, posed by, by Russia. So I think we, we absolutely need to understand those countries better, those content, because they know probably better than we do uh, what uh, the very nature of Russia regime, because they have their own history. And I think we have to understand better the history of those countries, including, of course, Poland, uh, because they were former communist countries, they were in the Soviet Empire. Uh, so they understand the nature of the regime, and um, I think we we, we cannot uh, uh, give hand to a kind of uh, let's say uh, benign neglect uh, to uh, what they are uh, thinking and um, what they are experiencing, uh, because those countries are experiencing something uh, which is quite better. Maybe I will add something else, uh, which is the case of Belarus. I think we have to consider uh, the situation in Belarus and uh, the situation in Russia completely jointly. Um, just consider, for instance, what's Lithuania uh, and also Poland. Uh, to a certain extent, are doing uh, in the support of uh, Belarusian opposition. Uh, they are engaging with the opposition. They are uh, recognizing uh, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya as the president-elect of Belarus. Uh, they are supporting the civil society, the NGOs, the universities, the refugees, etc. The rest of the EU, the EU is doing absolutely nothing on that. And then, for instance, when it comes to Belarus, I think it will be the next threat. Of course, there are many threats uh, posed by Russia. There is many, I think, uh, attempt to destabilize the countries. But Belarus probably is the first uh, because Belarus doesn't want to have 
solution in Belarus. They want to keep uh, Belarus uh, in their zone of uh, influence. And I think we have really to denounce, and we have also intellectually to denounce the concept of zone of influence. Uh, and uh, that's why I think we have to do more um, uh, towards Belarus right now. We have to help the oppositions and we have to say very clearly that uh, the Kremlin must have absolutely no say on the situation there. Thank you for listening. This podcast episode has been made possible thanks to the support of the German Marshall Fund of the US, the Black Sea Trust in Bucharest that sponsors Eastern Partnership Futures scenario mapping for Eastern Partnership countries for the next 10 years. And that's all for now. Subscribe to our podcast, our weekly newsletter on Central Europe, from Central Europe. <laughs>